Welcome to the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. I'm your host, Larry Witzel. Seventh-day Adventist churches grow differently, and our goal with this podcast is to offer practical training for effective evangelism in the Adventist ministry context. I'm so excited about today's episode. We're going to be hearing from Dr. Cesar De Leon, Ministerial and Hispanic Ministries Director for the North Pacific Union Conference. He was born in Guatemala City. He's an ordained Seventh-day Adventist minister. And in California, he's licensed as a marriage and family therapist. Dr. De Leon received a clinical PhD in marriage and family therapy from the School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. In this podcast episode, Dr. DeLeon leads the final breakout session in the church revitalization track at the Propel Conference, talking about how to deal with conflict in your church. He points out that conflict is inevitable, but the way that you handle the conflict can make an eternal difference. He talks about the sources of conflict, including the desire for stability and the feeling of shame. He also encourages us to look deep within our own hearts and acknowledge our own faults and contributions to the problem. This is a powerful presentation about what Jesus himself taught about conflict and reconciliation, and I think you're going to be blessed. Before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Seminars Unlimited. Their purpose is to serve your evangelistic mission. With over 40 years of experience, they offer design, social media, banners, printing, bindery, and mailing of custom handbills and Bible study response cards. Evangelism is their passion, and you should definitely consider them for your evangelism marketing. You can learn more at their website, seminarsunlimited.org, or by calling 1-800-982-3344. All right, let's turn now to Dr. Cesar de Leon as he leads this last breakout session in the church revitalization track of the 2023 Propel Conference. His topic, dealing with church conflict. When was the last time you had conflict? You remember? Um, when was it? Just yesterday, right? You don't have to go... You don't have to go back too many days, too many weeks. Usually, most of us have experienced conflict you know, in one way or another, recently. Now, here's another question. How many of you have experienced conflict? Welcome. Good to see you, Tyler. How many of you have experienced uh, conflict that you haven't still resolved? Now, that's a different question. You haven't resolved yet. In other words, it's still an ongoing conflict. For those of you that have come to our seminars, you've heard that uh, my wife and I, we went into a conflict one time, and it was seven months the time that basically the conflict started to the time that we ended the conflict and we resolved the conflict. Thank God we resolved it. Seven months. I also can remember the time when I had a problem with my senior pastor. I was a youth pastor in La Sierra, California. And um, my senior pastor said something about me that hurt me so deeply, deeply, deeply. So much so that I decided to request a transfer, not to another church, I decided to request a transfer to another conference. I didn't want to be around him and even see his face. And I will tell you, if there's time, I'll tell you the end of the story. Because I tried to avoid this pastor like he he was the pest, like he was COVID-19. And um, so if he was going to be in a place, I would just try to avoid. You know, we were working for the same union. 
Pacific Union. So there was times when we had to do things together and I would just try to stay as far away, as away from him as possible. So that is my experience with conflict. It's real, it's been there. Uh, and I've been challenged tremendously by conflict. Now, conflict is going to happen wherever you put some people together. Wherever you bring people together, conflict is going to most likely happen and take place. Why? Because we have different opinions, different ideas, we have different feelings, and there's going to be differences that will basically create conflict sooner or later. That's the reason why a good pastor should have a good program and a good plan to resolve conflict. So you need to understand how conflict works and what is the nature of conflict and what is the nature of the good resolution of conflict because sooner or later, as pastors, as workers, as people, as members of a family, you will come and you know, face a tremendous conflict in your life. Now, on top of the fact that uh, just by being humans, we walk into conflict, the Bible tells us, gives us a very dark picture of, of, about our nature. Check this out. Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Your head, talk about my head, your head is injured and your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. That is the condition of the human being. And basically this is as, 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 as the naked truth as you can find in the Bible about our condition. So imagine the propensity to conflict that we face day in and day out. Because we have our heads, because our heads are sick and our hearts are broken, our perceptions are going to be playing games on us. Our perceptions will always dictate the way we perceive conflict, perceive others. Our, our, our perception will basically develop a perception about myself. And if my perception is wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. Sadly, our perceptions are affected by a number of situations that come our way since we are babies. I'm talking about the quality of the emotional attachments that we're supposed to be developing or develop within the five years of, of our experience. So babies, by the age of five, they have already developed. You, by the age of five, had already developed your, the quality of your attachment. That means the attachment that will dictate the quality of every relationship that you will develop the rest of your lives. Until, of course, the second chances happen because God is a God of the second chances, right? Second opportunities. And God gives you a second opportunity for you to redo your connection, your emotional makeup, your emotional bonding. And guess when that second chance happens? Anybody? Any guest? Marriage. Marriage. So you keep the same bonding, emotional connection until the day that you happen to get married. Your spouse will help you if your spouse treats you with grace and love and kindness. Your spouse then will help you to uh, acquire a better attachment. 
Childhood emotional neglect, and I can go on and on, adverse childhood experiences, shame, uh, the uh, systemic functioning, homeostasis. Some people, they don't want changes. Some people don't want any, you know, some, some churches, they have crises just because you want to change the carpet. And why is it that we cannot change the carpet? Because uh, it's been this way for 20 years and it is just fine. People hate changes. And um, you have to ask yourself why. And then, of course, this connection from God, it basically messes up with our ability to deal with conflict. Shame, a big word, and I don't have time to go into this. We could have a whole seminar on shame. But uh, the one thing is feeling shameful about something or feeling ashamed that, that I went to a restaurant with a bunch of pastors when we were supposed to be giving Bible studies yesterday. You know, that's feeling shame. But another thing is being, being shameful. I feel shame about myself. Going to a point where, where shame is integrated into who I am, and then I become shame. When you become shame, that's a major problem. Because all these situations right here, clinical diagnosis, will be developed in your life very quickly when you feel shame about who you are. And imagine a person that is trying to resolve conflict, feeling shame about him or herself. A person comes into church and he stands with his head up high and he says, thank you God, because I am just a great person. I give tithe. I um, worship on Sabbath. And I'm just an awesome human being. And I want to thank you before I go that I am not like that person right there. Self-deception. <laughs> One of those people over here. <laughs> self-deception. When you are self-deceived, everything is going to go wrong. Because you will not perceive reality. And that is a fact of that reason. One of the reasons why sometimes it is hard to resolve a conflict. How can you resolve the conflict with somebody that doesn't see reality? Whose perception is completely skewed. So this topic is not very easy to face or to deal with because um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. What is conflict? A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals and desires. So as we've said before, your emotional well-being or your emotional trauma is going to be affecting your goals and your desires, day in and day out. What are the five triggers to conflict? Misunderstandings resulting from poor communication. And uh, we don't have time to go into the stories, but there's the texts there in case you guys would like to go into the story later on. Differences in values, goals, gifts, calling, priorities, expectations, interests, or opinions. Differences in perceptions, of course. Competition over limited resources, time, money. This is common in churches. Sometimes they, we want to do things in church, but we just don't have the, the time or the money or resources, and that gets us into trouble. Conflicting thoughts or trauma that is inner trauma, inner thoughts, inner feelings, 
inner wars that we wage in our hearts. And then, of course, conflicts become worse when we, you know, compound these sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. James 4.1 gives us a deeper picture. Where do all fights and quarrels among you come from? They come from your desires for pleasure. Not that, notice the word pleasure. Uh, it's interesting because I looked uh, at this word and I found that the Greek word is uh, hedonon. Because I go pleasures, pleasures. And I wanted to know what the, the original Bible said, uh, scripture said, and he used the word hedonon, which is sensual pleasures. So, this, this uh, disciple seems to have thought that most of our conflicts come because they are being driven by our carnal desires at the end of the day. Interesting way of looking at conflict. In the book, The Anatomy of Peace, you find this. Another characteristic of conflicts is the propensity to demonize others. Does that happen in church? Or just in mind. One way to, we do this is by lumping others into lifeless categories, bigoted, whites, for example, lazy blacks, cross Americans, arrogant Europeans, violent Arabs, manipulative Jews, and so on. When we do this, we make messes of unknown people into objects, or masses of unknown people into objects, and many of them into our enemies. Very serious. Two types of conflict. There's basically two reasons why people get into conflict. One is personal, and the other one is possessions. And then there's a third kind, but the third kind is not only, it's just the combination of the first two. When you put the material and the personal and you get your emotionals entangled into these issues, then things get very interesting. The Bible tells us that if you don't resolve conflict, usually it becomes very expensive at the end of the day. Conflict is very expensive. It will take energy, resources, health away from you. It will take time if you don't resolve it. In my case, I spent seven months not talking to my wife, living in the same house, years, years, years ago. Seven months, my friend pastor. And I spent about four years not talking to my senior pastor because I couldn't forget or forgive. Conflict. And it takes a toll on you. Imagine not, not talking to your wife for seven months. This is a reason because conflict tends to be some, so expensive. Jesus said, if you enter into conflict, quickly resolve it. Because if you don't resolve it, worse things may happen to you. And Jesus puts it with this wonderful story. He says, on your way to court, just talk to your friend and make up. Do something about it. Resolve the issue. Because if you don't, the judge is going to talk to the 
What is it? The officer. And the officer is going to throw you into jail, and you will stay in jail until you pay until the last penny. What a cruel way of uh, telling us that it is better for you to really solve your conflicts than to let them linger and linger for a long time. What are some of the prisons that we tend to go into when we don't resolve conflict? And I'm speaking um, by, um, what would I say, uh, experience. Frustration, stress, sleep disturbances, fear, tension, loss of appetite, desire for vengeance, anxiety, depression. Just to name the list. So what is the difference between the way we resolve conflict in the church and the way the world resolves conflict? Can you show me? Can you tell me how? What is the difference? It says, well, it says there, avoidance, manipulation, and control. Hmm. So we're pretty much following the world. And what is it that the world does? The world either escapes or attacks. And what do you find in the church happening? Same thing. We escape. We ignore it. We think that uh, nothing's really happening, even though everything is happening. But we play it safer. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to get things going. We don't want the pastor to find out that I don't get along with my brother over here. So I just don't say anything. I remember that uh, there was a time when, and this is a sad, a sad moment in in the experience of uh, ministry, but uh, that's what happens sometimes. I used to work with another associate pastor at this church. So there were two associate pastors, one senior pastor. And one of the associate pastors came to my wife one day and said, Caroline, last night I dreamed with you. And we were married, and we were, we were very happy. So imagine your co-worker. If, 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 if I would have had your body, I would have hit him outside. But I didn't have that body of yours, so. <laughs> so imagining myself having to work with this associate pastor the rest of my tenure in this church. I has told my wife, we were married and we were happy. And his wife and his children were in the same church, worshiping there. What do you do? So sometimes, I'm going to show you, sometimes it's good to let this go and to just withdraw so that you can think, pray, and put your thoughts together. So there is a time when escaping, avoiding is good. <laughs> but this is popular. Flight, denial, and some people commit suicide. And this is happening to our children nowadays. And it's happening with the pastor's children. They are committing suicide because there's too much conflict that they cannot confront or do anything about. So they, they played denial for years. They have get out, gotten away. But the pain, the sorrow, the shame is just too large, too much. They decide to basically kill themselves. The easy way out. On the other side, notice, both extremes, they end up in the same place. Somebody's going to die. 
people that decide to attack, they assault, they go to the judge, they litigate, and sometimes they end up deciding, I'm going to kill you. Commit murder. And we have uh, plenty of those cases nowadays going on. So conflict avoidance is coming in our churches. Why? Myth number one. Conflict is wrong and dangerous. So we avoid it in our church. Number two. Hurting people's feelings is wrong. If I talk to this individual, I'm going to hurt his feelings. No, 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 that's wrong, so I won't do it. Myth number three, relationships will be destroyed, so I better go quiet. And I believe that that's the reason why I didn't say anything to this pastor or to his wife, because I knew I was going to cause a lot of trouble for the woman and for the wife. To make this story short, he ended up losing his ministry 10 years later because he messed up with somebody else's wife. So... Number four, Christians should always agree. So therefore, we do not go into conflict in our churches. This is, these are the times when it is good to escape. When we're supposed to escape? When our life is in danger? When we are being threatening seriously? When you are being physically, verbally, and emotionally, and sexually abused, and we can spend the whole evening talking about this one. But this topic is not about sexual or physical or emotional abuse. Useful to calm down and organize your thoughts and pray, what we call time out. And then, of course, some people, instead of escaping, or, I'm sorry, instead of just going that route and pray and gather their thoughts and organize, they decide to check out. And they commit suicide. I was telling the pastors last night, some of the you, that uh, a friend of mine had a son, 17 years, 16, 17 years old. He committed suicide because um, he was afraid. He had been hearing a preacher, Seventh-day Adventist preacher, that kept talking about the dragon and the serpent and the, and the persecution, and we were going to be thrown into jail. And the mother was a follower of this preacher, so that's all she heard. She was listening to this guy at home, on TV, in the radio, on the radio, and this little kid is absorbing these messages. So here's the case where a kid kills himself because he's afraid of the message, of the, the three angels' message that this pastor has been presenting for years in his own way, of course. And then, of course, there is the other extreme, attacking. People interested in winning a conflict over persevering relationships. I want to win. I don't care about the relationship. I want to win. People see conflict as an opportunity to assert their rights, control others, or take advantage of the situation. People usually see themselves as stronger and better than others. It can also be used by people who see themselves as weak, fearful, in, in, insecure, or vulnerable. What wars are being fought inside of your life? What's, being, what's waging a war inside of you? 
pastor, uh, what's his name, was preaching last night about the serpent mm. that can grab your hand and it sticks to you. And you walk around and there's a serpent, it's right there. You cannot get rid of it. And some of us, we have more than one serpent. And that serpent is dictating the way I'm doing relationships, including and beginning with my spouse, children, and community, and churches. Of course, people don't know that there is a war that is waging, or there is a raging. They don't know there is a, something that is being fighting, because sometimes this fight began when you were a child. So you're used to it. That's the only way you've lived. That's the only experience you have always had. Something has been waging a war, but that you think is normal. It's part of being the son of Adam and Eve, or daughters of Adam and Eve. So sometimes these wars are completely unconscious. So then, of course, the attack. And I was going to tell you a story about San Jose, but um, uh, I'm going to leave it maybe for the end. There's the litigation, and we'll be speaking more about litigation than murdering people. Whenever I dehumanize another, I necessarily dehumanize all that is human, including myself. What's interesting is that we dehumanize people in the name of Jesus. Remember the man that came into the temple to worship? I want to praise your name because I'm so good and he is so bad. And I thank you that you did not create me like him. Dehumanizing individuals. When I dehumanize somebody in the process, I dehumanize myself. That's how we feel shameful. We feel bad when we dehumanize somebody. On the outside, we may feel like, I won, I won. On the inside, you feel terrible because you dehumanize yourself by dehumanizing somebody else. We can talk going to personality disorders all day long. Yes. So in conflict, you, we have, you have two choices. You focus on the process, you focus on the goal by competing, avoiding, or perhaps coming out somehow even compromising. But if you focus on relationships, then you are more prone to collaborate or to accommodate, which creates a win-win situation. Now, there are uh, Sandy, which is the author of, um, oh boy, actually I have the book, in case you guys are interested in, uh, this is a wonderful book, the, pay, the Peacemaker. So this is Sandy. He says that when you resolve conflict, it is useful to begin by asking yourself three questions. And be aware of self-awareness, other awareness, and God's awareness, which I believe is very powerful. About self-awareness, he says, ask yourself what's going on in my own heart. What am I feeling? Powerful. Why? How am I inclined to respond? What shall I do instead? 
consciousness. What's going on with me about this conflict? Number two, other awareness. How am I affecting others? What do others seem to be feeling? What do they seem to need? Oh, wow. How can I demonstrate genuine love and forgiveness? And then God awareness. What is God up to? Why did he allow, allow this situation? Am I acting in faith or unbelief? What would glorify Jesus? Wow. What would glorify Jesus? And that question began to heal my relationship to this senior pastor that after years, four or five years, that I wasn't talking to him, I learned that we're supposed to go to Hawaii. I'm supposed to present, my wife and I are supposed to present marriage and family seminars, and he's supposed to be presenting the devotionals. Mm. And I didn't want to be in the same place with him. Mm. This is after four or five years. And I remember that I told the lady, because she said to me, uh, because we know that you and so-and-so are good friends, we have placed you in the same hotel next to each other's room. Oh. <laughs> and I told my wife, that's it, we're not going. We're not going. She said, I want you to pray. Thank God for our wives, right? I want you to pray before you say no and you cancel this appointment. Just pray. And I began a season of prayer in my life, and one of the questions was this. What would glorify him? Powerful, when it comes down to conflict resolution. So these concepts are now come from this book, The Peacemaker. And this is the main um, tenant of the book. When Christians learn to be peacemaker, uh, peacemakers, they can turn conflict into an opportunity to strengthen relationships, preserve valuable resources, and make their lives a testimony to the love and power of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And, and he says, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually from the goodness and power of Jesus Christ, and then they bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. And then he says something else. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and, recon and reconciliation. Is that beautiful? Imagine if all the members of your church believed in this and practiced it. So here's, we're beginning to give answers to the, your question. Here are the four principles, and this is the heart of uh, this book's um, presentations. Number one, <clears throat> the author says, when you confront conflict, number one, Glorify God, and we already talked about it a little bit more, uh, and we're going to be talking more about it, but we already discussed it. Number two, get the log out of your eye. Very powerful and very important. Number three, gently restore, and you ask, how do we know we have resolved it? Gently restore, and we're going to be going to that. And then number four, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. The, the four Gs, he called them. And he based, the whole book is based on one text. Well, 
he uses many texts, but this is the column, the, the main tenant. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all, please all men in all things, not to seek my own profit, but to profit of many that they may be saved. So salvation was in the mind of the apostle. Imitate me just as also I imitate Christ. Very powerful. So let's go to the number one G, glorify God. He says, you glorify God in the midst of a conflict by depending on and drawing attention to what? His grace. Are you with me? His grace. His undeserved love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom he gives to us through Jesus Christ. That should be our focus. He says, we trust God and do what he prescribes in his word even if we don't like it. Even if we don't like it. We celebrate his power to forgive our sins and release us from our sins. We trust that he uses conflict to grow and transform us. Ooh, your own transformation. Delight in displaying his sanctifying power in our lives and attempt to do things that we could never accomplish in our own strength, such as forgiving someone who has hurt us. That's what for glorifying God means. He continues. Deep desire to bring honor to God by revealing the reconciling love and power of Jesus Christ. We draw on his grace. We follow his example. We put his teachings into practice. We find freedom from the impulses, self-centered decisions that make conflict worse. We bring praise to God by displaying the power of the gospel in our lives. In other words, he says, when you confront a conflict, your number one focus should be him. Him. Imagine that. Imagine that. He continues. It's not done yet. When someone mistreats or opposes us, our instinct reaction is to justify ourselves and do everything we can to get our way. This selfish attitude usually leads to impulses, decisions, and only makes matters worse. Then he says, focus on the cross and what he has done for us as the key to resolve conflict constructively. And number three, when we remember his mercy and draw on his strength, we invariably see things more clearly and respond to conflict more wisely. He tells the story that his uh, godly wife one day lost it and called him a name. And he got so hurt that he couldn't be in the house next to her. So he went to the garden and started raking leaves. And he was just, you know, thinking how ugly she is, how mean she is, how, you know, satanic she had become. All of a sudden, he says, the spirit told me, tell me one good thing about your wife, only one, one thing. He says, I don't have time for that right now because she's ugly, because she's mean. And the spirit kept, kept pressing. He says, 
tell me one good thing about your wife. And he says, just because I didn't want to continue being pressured by that, this feeling, I decided, okay, I want to think about one thing about my wife. And he says, I thought about something. And he says, she's a good cook. And she always takes care of me, you know, giving me good food. And very quickly, that was like a window that opened up. And after that, he thought, wow, she's been with me through thin and, and, and thick. Wow, she's been faithful to me all these years. When I invite my friends to her house, she always takes care of them, and she always just, she's, she's so nice. So, so she, and all of a sudden, very quickly, she began, he began to change his mind and his feelings about his wife. He came inside the house, and when he came into the house, he kissed her from behind. You know, he gave her a, a, a kiss in the cheek, and she went like, what happened to you? Because when he left, he was so angry and so mad. Of course, she was also angry and mad at him. So it's interesting that when you make him a priority in your conflicts, a lot of things fall into the right place. Amen. You start seeing a vision that you don't, didn't see before. All of a sudden, your feelings and your emotions are not so important, especially when you bring the cross into the horizon and you place it right there on a mountain and you see a Jesus crucified. Things change very quickly. Number two. Get the log out of your eyes. And you know this text. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eyes? When you have a log in your own, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of your log in your eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Do you remember a time when you were there? You were so blind by your own log that you couldn't do justice to the situation that you were facing. Hmm. Yes, friend. How do you know when your log is gone? <laughs> How do you know when your log is gone? That's a good question. In the context of this man that is standing in the temple, speaking the right things, I am so humble, he thought. Yet his heart was so full of pride and self-exaltation. It is hard to know the heart. And sometimes we can even deceive ourselves into repentance. Did you know that? We can actually deceive ourselves into repentance because we think that, well, okay, repent. Okay, yeah, I feel sorry for my sin. Okay, forgive me. But she says, the heart is so deceitful more than anything else. I'm very wicked. So she says, just keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at him. And something's going to happen to your life and to your heart. She says, and when she says she is eligible, she says, his comparison to his life wasn't God. He was comparing himself to another human being. And that was his downfall. Downfall. He was comparing himself to Somebody that was, according to him, worse than him. So he looked very good. That's why we, we talk about dehumanizing individuals. That's what we do. We dehumanize individuals in order for us to feel somehow a little better. Anyhow, what does this mean? Okay. Acknowledge your contributions to the problem. How do you know that you are working on your log? 
when you acknowledge what are the contributions to the problem. <coughs> Ignoring others' minor offenses and focusing honestly in your own faults. Have you ever asked somebody, would you please tell me what my faults are? Or what my weak points are? <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> That's what marriage is for, right? That's what marriage is for. That's how you get married. Uh, or parenting too. That, that, there you go. Your children, right? Yeah. They have a way to tell you true I'll stuff. Yeah, They'll be honest. Sometimes we need to hear those things. Because we think we're all that. We see through a glass darkly of our own. We see through, yeah, of course, yeah. So we need to, sooner or later, face our own realities. Otherwise, we're going to fall into the self-deception thing. And self-deception is very popular nowadays. I am so good. No. I don't have no need of anything. I'm so rich. You don't know nothing, says the Bible. You don't know you're so naked. Mm -hmm. You're so poor. You're so wretched. But you don't know. The problem is that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And helping somebody that don't know is very hard. And still, Jesus says, but because I love you, I'm going to tell you still what you need. Buy from me. I'm going to give you, you know, this advice. I'm going to give you medicine. I'm going to give you help. But you've got to do something about this thing because, really, you need me badly because you're in bad shape. So I'm knocking at the door. Anyhow, point number three. I don't want to be preaching at you guys. It's easy for me to preach. <laughs> Our oppon opponents... Opponents will be encouraged to respond in kind, of course. Tension decreases, a way is open for sincere discussion, negotiations, and reconciliation. Question, how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility in my contributions to the problem? How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contributions to this problem. Here are the logs. In case you don't know what your logs are, in case you don't know what type of logs may, may, you may have and I may have, these are it. An oversensitive attitude. Your contributions to the problem is rooted in your own carnal inclinations. Three, your contributions to the problem may be a projection of your hatred towards your own sin or self. In psychology, they say that you criticize that in others that part of yourself that you hate the most. You're lazy. You're such a lazy. You're bum. Maybe somebody told you when you were a kid, you're lazy. So his laziness is reminding me of Somebody told me I was lazy, and I bought the lie, and I believed it, so I believe I'm a lazy individual. So I want to criticize everybody that is lazy. I hate myself or what others remind me of myself, and that brings conflict. Have you seen that lady coming into church with such a hair? <laughs> have you seen the tie that the pastor wears? I mean, does he have another tie? People that hate themselves will always criticize. 
Here we go. Number three. Gently restore. Number three. Gently restore. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So when others fail to see the contributions to their own conflicts and errors, you need to have the courage to graciously show them their faults. And most of us don't do that. We don't dare to do this no more. If they fail to respond adequately, we apply Matthew 18. We call our friends, church leaders, and other objective individuals. This is biblical. Paul himself said, please help these two ladies in Philippi that they don't get along very well. So help them agree with each other. So Paul basically believed in confronting in a gently manner to restore situations and problems. And Paul says, please don't take it to court. Please don't go to court. So question, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them to take responsibility for their contributions to the conflict? Two ways of resolving problems. It is the personal way and the assisted way. The personal way, you got three choices. You choose to overlook the offense, you choose to do the, the way of reconciliation, or you go the negotiation way. But those are what we call the personal way. In other words, you are in control of those ways. And then, of course, the Bible gives us plenty of the passages. I'm not going to read all of them. They are there. But basically, the Bible says, hey, just let it go. Ignore it. If you're wise, ignore it. If you're a spiritual individual, and it's very small, and it doesn't really affect anybody, just let it go. Just let it go. And those are the passages right there that the Bible gives us. And they are not all the passages, but at least some of them. However, some people that believe that overlooking just means just putting things under the rug. Just placing things under the rug. That's not true. Listen to this. Overlooking a problem is not ignoring it or a type of self-deception that makes us believe that nothing really happened. Overlooking a problem is to make a choice. It is an active process that is inspired by God's mercy and grace. You will not talk about the problem, dwell in on it, or let it grow into resentment. That's what it means by letting it go. So it's not about you thinking nothing really happened, but it's going to be creating you know, conf- inner conflict in yourself, and it's going to be creating maybe uh, bitterness in your life. No. If you are going to let it go, you have to make a choice. I'm not going to let it affect me in any way. So reconciliation, of course, that's when you are sick uh, because you, there has been damage in the relationship. So you cannot let it go. You need to com- uh, confront it. So you demand confession uh, in a loving, through a loving correction. Uh, hopefully there will be forgiveness. And basically you are following the Bible's advice when it says, go and reconcile. And Galatians 6.1 says, my friends, if someone is caught in any kind of wrongdoing, those of you who are spiritual should set him right. But you must do it in a gentle way and keep an eye on yourselves <laughs> so that you will not be tempted to. Interesting. 
Negotiations, working through material issues. Sometimes you need, to, need, you need help. So you ask people to help or to negotiate, or sometimes you yourself negotiate about money, possessions, or, or other people's rights. But in the midst of all this, Paul says, and look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. Ooh. That will solve a lot of problems and issues. Assisted peacemaking. This is the assisted way. When you go to mediation, you go to arbitration, and you, you do accountability. And basically, very quickly here, uh, when you do go to mediation, you're looking for the assistance of people that will give you some advice. They don't have a way to tell you what to do. They can just advise you. Uh, they may ask questions. They may throw light into the problem, but they don't make decisions. You make your own decisions. That is mediation. Arbitration, this is where you basically go into uh, a, a look for other people to help you make the decision, and these people make the decision for you. So you're in control. And then, of course, there is the accountability, where Paul says, if you cannot resolve your problems through arbitration, mediation, uh, when you talk to somebody and you face people's problems, then you need to take it to, ch to the church. Just to give you the whole uh, perspective of what we've been saying, this is the personal way. You overlook, you seek for reconciliation, you, are, you look for negotiation. In all this, you are in control. It's private, it's voluntarily, uh, voluntary, it's, uh, you look for your own solutions, great again, small cost. Assisted mediation, arbitration, accountability, basically is more public. There's more chance, chances are that you may not get everything you are looking for. You, there are greater losses, there are greater cost. And when that doesn't work, people go to the courts. People go to the judge. What's litigation? Litigation is no other thing that professionally assisted denial and attack. That's litigation. You find a lawyer that will make you look good. So whatever they say that you did, forget about it. You didn't do it. You're good. They are bad. They are wrong. So we're going to attack them because they are the guilty party. That's what happens in litigation. So reality is completely destroyed. You are painted as a good person while the enemy is over there. And we're going to go after the enemy. And we're going to get everything that we can out of those people. So there is distortion of reality that ends up devastating relationships. You don't see people that have gone to court becoming friends afterwards. It doesn't happen. You destroy relationships. The more sure I am that I am right, the more likely I will actually be mistaken. My need to be right makes it more likely that I will be wrong. Likewise, the more sure I am that I am mistreated, the more likely I am to miss ways that I am mistreating others myself. My need for justification obscures the truth. Here's another picture for you. This focuses on me. This process focuses, focuses on us. This focuses on you. I'm going to kill you for attacking me. Uh, so this is First Corinthians, and I'm not going to read for lack of time. But basically, this is what Paul says: Why are you going to? Why are you going to the courts? 
Don't you know that you're going to be judging angels? Don't you know that the Lord has given you the ability to judge each other? Do you know that when you go to the courts, you basically are letting down the name of Jesus and you're not honoring your faith? Mm. So Paul says, don't go to the courts. Stay in, keep this in house. And he's talking about this even with legal matters. But our churches nowadays are not dealing with any conflict. We quickly tell people, our members, just find a lawyer. Because we don't want to get ourselves uh, dirty. But Paul says, mm -mm, I don't believe in saints going to courts. Now, listen what this judge, Antonin Scalia, said. I think this passage, talking about 1 Corinthians 6, 1, and 8, uh, 1 to 8, has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points. First, he says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready to, today to seek vindication or vengeance through adversary priest proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians should, or just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Yeah, here is a comparison. I don't have time to get into this comparison, but this is the reasons why we should. Let me just read this, because you know about that one. But let's read this. The church can actively encourage forgiveness and promote reconciliation, preserving relationships, something that the courts don't do. The church can point people to Christ and help them deal with the root cause of the problem. They don't do that. It gives a picture of reality by pointing people to personal sin and offenses by addressing them first. Then the legal issues can be easily resolved. Church can help people resolve harmful habits so they will experience less conflict and enjoy healthier relationships in the future. They don't do that. The remedies, uh, its remedies are more complete and more effective. The course will never do that for you. And number four, go and be reconciled. The gospel teaches that we should be committed to restoring damaged relationships. And we need to do all that it is in our, at our, our power and our hands to find reconciliation. When we forgive others, as God forgives us, and seek resolution that satisfies others' interests as well as ours, the debris of conflict is cleared away and the door is open for genuine peace. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? And that's what I decided to do with my pastor friend. I started praying for him. But I pray for him in this way. God, because this is what I felt impressed to do so, to do. I said, God, bless this man, this pastor that hurt me, that humiliated me in front of the whole church, that just did this thing to me. Um, bless him. So if he's got, if he's driving a Volkswagen, give him a Mercedes. And I was praying literally for specific blessings for him. Give him joy, peace. If his wife wants to get pregnant, let, him, let her get pregnant and have them have a thousand children. Make him an, another Abraham. <laughs> I don't care. Just make him an Abraham. And I was praying so specifically for this guy. And it took me four months, four months, for me to start clearing my soul, clearing myself from the hatred, from the bitterness I had stored, been storing against him. When I saw him in uh, Hawaii, 
It's funny because I'm entering into the hotel, and I press the button to go upstairs to our room, and I guess who comes out of the elevator when it opens up? The pastor and his wife, right there, boom. We haven't seen each other for four years. He knows that I left because of what he did to me. And he sees me, and he went like, you know, he was surprised to see me. I looked at him, I go, hey, so-and-so, how are you? And then I, I did the same thing with his wife. Again? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that started a course of us restoring our relationship. But I noticed that he kept doing something at me. Every time we met, he would look at me and look at my eyes. What was he looking for? He was looking for hate. He was looking for bitterness. And he could not believe that he couldn't find anything in my eyes. Because he doesn't know that I had spent, he didn't know that I had spent four months on my knees praying for him. My heart was completely clean. And I decided we want to restore this because this is what my Jesus wants me, needs me to do so that his gospel can be proclaimed farther Amen. and he can be honored. So sometimes, my friends, resolving conflict is not about you getting what you need or you want or seeking justice. It's about you just honoring the God that you say you love and you serve. So the question that we ask over here is, is it possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody, says Romans chapter 12, verse 18. And listen to this. Every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think of God. Wow. Here is a lesson that I want you to guys to walk away with because it, it hit me. <clears throat> you know, many, oftentimes we think, okay, um, let me resolve my, my conflict with you. Matthew says, talk to the person that you have something against. So I, I talk to you. It doesn't work out, I call Francisco. No. Javier. Javier. I'm sorry, Javier. <laughs> I call Javier. If it doesn't work out, we'll go to our pastor, Cesar, right here. That's what he boss says, right? Strictly, that's what the Bible says. And if I do it, I'm following the Bible. Guess what? Sandwiched. 18, 15, 17 is sandwiched between two stories. Number one, the parable of the lost sheep. Where the message is mercy, compassion, redemption. Boom. You have something against your brother? Talk to him. Doesn't listen to you. Bring somebody else. Doesn't listen to you. Go to the pastor. Go to the community. After that story comes another story. Which one is that? The story of the debtor. The one that said, forgive me. I owe you $40,000. But forgive me. If you give me time, I'll, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you. Because he's about to be sold. Him and his wife and his children. He says, please be patient. And the king says, I'll forgive you. I'll release you. Just go. And then he finds a friend that owes him $40. Says, pay me my $40. Pay me right now. I'll give me time. I'll pay you everything. Just, just, I don't have it right now, but give me time. I'll pay you. Says, no, no, I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. If you don't pay me, okay, go to jail. You and your wife and your kids. And when the king heard what he had done, he said, you evil servant. 
those are the two lessons between Matthew 18. The second lesson, same thing. Be merciful, be compassionate, be redemptive. So guess what these lessons, these stories are telling us? When you apply Matthew 18, you got to come with a spirit, redemptive, loving, kind, patience. And not only that, check this out. The verb go, go talk to somebody, is the verb in Greek, upage, which is written in the imperative, present, active. And you guys that know Greek understand that that verb then is a continuing action. That means that the verb is saying, when you have somebody against you, or, or you have something against you, or somebody has something against you, you go talk to that person. It doesn't say one time. It doesn't mean go talk to the person. If, if he fails, then go call Caesar. Uh-uh. It says go try it again, and go try it again, and go try it again without calling nobody, just you and him. And we don't do that. That's not the way we have understood Matthew 18. Check this out. If you don't succeed first, try to discern what went, what went wrong. Seek counsel and correct any mistake. Give the other person time to think and give God time to work and then go again. We should continue to resolve the matter privately until it becomes obvious that we are not accomplishing the desired goal or we are doing harm. God uses conflict, my friends, because he wants to expose sinful attitudes and habits in your life. Number two, conflict is effective in breaking down appearances and revealing stubborn pride, a bitter and unforgiving heart, and a critical tongue. And if you're going to go to heaven, we need to change. God uses conflict to stretch and challenge you in careful, tailored ways. Adversity builds character, ABC of spiritual growth. I'm just going to leave that text right there. So, let's wrap this up. Turn in the corner. So take a look at how you are treating each other. Number one. Number two, process how your faith and proclamation of Jesus can inform the way you should be acting. Very important. Number three, examine your attitude and behaviors considering some Bible passages. If you don't glorify God in your actions, remember, you may be glorifying somebody else. If by your actions, you will show either that you have a big God or you have a big ego with a big problem. Consider the possibility that you have an idol. You know that some people go after the problem is, is about money because you lost $400? But it's not the money. It's the fact that that money is my idol. And I'm not going to lose a penny of it. And you got to wow. pay me everything. It's about an idol. It's not about the money. Number, uh, where were we? <laughs> Seven. Pray for the spirit to move in with this situation into a situation. God-centered approach to conflict resolution makes you less dependent on results. More into relationships. Questions to ponder when we consider conflict resolution. 
How can I please and honor God in this situation? Number two, how can I bring praise to Jesus by showing, showing that he has saved me and is changing me? How can I focus less on going through the conflict and more about growing through the conflict? What are some of the ways I can approach this conflict? Great questions. I'm sorry, my friend. Go ahead. You, you got it? Okay, good. These are some of the ways we can approach conflict. There's the Jacob sending presents to his brothers. There is this, the Joseph brothers trying to send an ambassador so that he doesn't remember that they were the ones that throw him into the well and sold him as a slave. Abigail basically uh, intervened between her husband and this other, uh, uh, the enraged David, right? So those are ways that we can approach conflict. Face-to-face uh, -face is a good way to resolve conflict. Genuine reconciliation can happen without face-to-face -face encounters. I'm going to say this, I guess. Genuine reconciliation can happen without face-to-face -face encounters. In other words, if Jesus sought to show the face to Moses, and Moses was seeking to see Jesus' face to be able to create a good relationship, same thing. If you want to reconstruct a relationship, you need to eventually do it face to face. Uh, we know about reconciliation. Uh, some people ask, what about my rights? Uh, don't I deserve better? Don't I deserve for justice to be done? So here are the questions for you guys that think about your rights. Will exercising my rights honor God by showing the power of the gospel in my life? Will exercising my rights advance God's kingdom, or will it advance only my interests at the expense of his kingdom? Will, exercise, will exercising my rights benefit others? Do you know that right now I am sending money to my father so that he can live until he dies one day? This is a man that didn't give me anything, zero. Went to school, went to college, zero. Wasn't there. He abandoned me when I was six months old. No relationship with the man. Zero. But now that he's 80-something, a half-sister writes me and he says, Cesar, we need help. We need help. He needs help. He needs money. He needs to pay his rent. He needs to buy his food. He needs to have somebody that will come by and help him with some chores. We need you to help. And here was I, a son that did not receive anything from this man, zero, zero. Now I have to pay money for him to survive until he dies. This is not right. This, this is not fair. What's my right? But my right is to say, you know what? Sorry, man. I'm not your son. You are a sperm donor. That's what you are. You are a sperm donor. But you're not my father. But is that profitable to the kingdom of heaven? No. Would I be honoring God no. to a half-sister that knows that I'm a preacher of the Seventh-day Adventist church? What would they think if I say, sorry, he's not my father? and leave him stranded and abandoned. 
So here I am, doing something for a man that didn't give me anything, sending money every month. So sometimes our right is the list that should be going through our minds when we deal with, with, with uh, conflict. Because what were to happen if God begins to treat us Or with no grace yeah. in it. He loved us while we were still sinners. Is exercising my rights essential for my well-being? Abraham did not exercise his rights with Lot. Joseph did not exercise his rights with his brothers, asking for justice to be done. David did not exercise his rights with Saul, Shimei, and others that were chasing him and went trying to kill him. Paul did not exercise his right to receive financial support from the church in Corinth. Jesus did not exercise his right when asked to pay his taxes. So why should you? I'm going to answer your questions, and I think we're going to stop there. Oh, go ahead. Take your picture. Take your picture. And I'll, I'm just going to move. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so where's conflict? A management opportunity. The spirit God has given you, has equipped you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord. And God says, now go do the right thing. So it's a management opportunity for you to manage life the way Jesus would do it if he would, where was in your place. It's a management opportunity. At the end of the day. The closer we follow his teaching and rely on his grace, the clearer you will see a constructive solution and a genuine reconciliation. Is there a time when you can forgive but you will not reconcile, right? You won't be reconciled. Imagine somebody that abused you sexually when you were a kid. You can choose to forgive, and you got to forgive because you got to let it go. But you don't want to reconcile with this individual. Because this individual, most likely, if given the opportunity, he will talk to you in person and alone so that maybe he can continue manipulating you. Or maybe he can get closer to your children so that he can continue doing the same. So there are some situations where, yes, you can forgive, but reconciliation may not be um, a choice because the person may be so very toxic or destructive, and the person will never be able to understand what the person had done. Mm-hmm. My father, this man that I'm talking to you about? My father, I said. <laughs> married, eventually, he married like 12 times. Um, but one of those wives... About 12 times. Poor guy. Lost his mother when he was five. Lost a mother when he was five. And the only thing he had left was his father, a colonel in the army. And the father, who was a retired colonel, married a 19-year-old girl. And when the girl came to the house, she was jealous about the relationship between my father and his father. And she started basically hitting my father away from the father. And my father had just lost his mother. He's five. So one day my father decides to kill his stepmother. Nothing wrong. 
took his father's, took his father's rifle, took aim in that, uh, you know, those old Spaniards, Spaniards' houses where there's a, a fountain in the middle and then the rooms are all around. He took aim, seven o'clock at night. He says, when my father and his stepwife come out in the morning, I will kill her. He's five years old, big rifle. By nine, he's asleep. Six o'clock in the morning, my grandfather finds him sleeping on top of his rifle and asks him, what are you doing with my rifle? Being a five-year-old kid, he says, I want to kill her. She hates me, and she doesn't let me spend time with you anymore. That day, he was kicked out of his house five years old. So lost a mother, and six, seven months later, he lost his father. Imagine the emotional makeup of this man. Imagine the trauma in this man's house. So he's been looking for his mother ever since. He marries women. In psychology, we say, and this sounds a little rough, but in psychology, they said that he's still looking for his mother's, uh, how we say, uh, he was milk. He was milk. How we say he's looking for his mother's uh, breast. breast. But the story I want to tell you is that this man married this woman whose father owned a thousand, ten thousand cattle in the hills. He became the manager of that ranch. The, his father-in-law, older individual, told him one day, why don't you move into the ranch and just take care of it? And we'll come every six months to check on you. He starts selling the calves and the cows and the bulls and everything else, and nobody knows that he's selling, making money out of these people's money, you know, animals. One day, he decided to sell the ranch, and those people over there didn't even know he was selling the ranch. Took away the inheritance of my half-brothers and sisters, and left these people completely broken. Took off and left, with thousands and thousands and millions of dollars. Now he comes back, and years later, he tells the family, uh, if you guys would like to start a ranch, I can help you out. <laughs> would you trust that person? So you may forgive, but establishing that relationship all over again, that would be being naive. So there are some situations that, no, you, 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 can, you can forgive, but you cannot restore relationships. And this is the last slide right there. Sorry for your time. But basically, Paul says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive you anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for loving us so much and forgiving our sins. We thank you because at the time when we were supposed to be treated as enemies, you continue treating us as friends. Actually, better than friends, you've said, now you are my brothers. 
And we don't understand how come you continue working on our behalf and you're so stubborn in wanting to have us next to you when you go home or you go to heaven and then you say, in my house, there are many, many other rooms where I want you to live with me next to me. We don't understand the type of love. So we thank you so much for that love. And we ask you to help us to evaluate, evaluate deeper and deeper every day so that we may be able to treat our brothers and sisters with the same respect, love, kindness, patience that you have shown to us. Bless us and prepare us for heaven because we do want to be with you for the rest of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. What a powerful presentation on conflict and reconciliation. And I guess the natural question I have for you is, who is God asking you to reach out to? Is there someone God is prompting you to reconcile with? Will you take the first step to begin that process of healing? Now, we always encourage the practice of reflection in each of these podcast episodes. So when this episode finishes in a few moments, I'd like to suggest that you pause for five or 10 minutes and just let your mind wander. What was the big idea for your ministry? How will you apply this in your own ministry context? This reflection time can be really powerful. Well, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to Dr. Cesar De Leon for speaking at this year's Propel Conference. This has been the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. The Propel Podcast is sponsored by the North Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and is produced by the crew at Sermon View Evangelism Marketing. I'm Larry Witzel, wishing you God's richest blessing in your evangelistic journey. Please join us again next time for another episode of the Propel Podcast. Mm-hmm.